Hello and welcome to Sideload, the technology podcast from Edelman London. This is episode 36. I'm Sarah Farber and today we're talking to Bruce Daisley, who's not only a mere vice president for Twitter, but also host of a hugely popular podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, where he talks to experts about how to make our work lives more fulfilling. In addition to this, he's recently launched a number one best-selling book, The Joy of Work, 30 Ways to Fix Your Work Life. Today, Bruce will be talking about driving a positive workplace culture and living your best work life. today with something a little bit different from our usual format and we're sharing a talk from Bruce on work culture and how to engineer a better culture. But first we managed to sit down with Bruce to dive a little deeper onto a couple of the key points from the session. So one of the key takeaways for me was how creativity is being crushed by stress which you referred to as the uh, operating system of modern work. So I was hoping you could dive a little deeper into that. Yeah so um Look, the, the critical thing is that I, I think most of us recognise that we want to do our best work and, and, you know, people in jobs are happier than people who, who don't have jobs. So work seems to provide this sort of nourishment and stimulation and meaning in life. But the way that we're doing that work seems to be, um, seems to be damaging our... Uh, our whole psyche really, you know, burnout is becoming increasingly prevalent, people are feeling like they can't cope with the the demands of modern work and and I think it's because most of the changing demands of modern work have come from technology, we almost are scared to appear Luddite if we say, okay, I'm, I'm not okay with this, I'm not okay with sort of trying to connect with Slack channels and Google Hangouts and like, and emails and and uh, pings all day of night, and we, we're scared that we're going to appear luddite or like longing for a world of the past. And I'm not proposing that at all. I'm merely saying that unless we challenge some of the ingredients that we're putting into the mix right now, I think the end result of work is of our own making. So you know, we've often got what scientists call learned help, learned helplessness that we feel. We can't change this. We can't push back on this. We can't uh, question this. And I would say, any time scientists have looked at whether you can push back, you appear you appear to be able to. Um, but we need to be more resolute in our in our own efforts to to do it. Great. So then, what are the simple steps that businesses and employees can both take to make work culture better? Yes. Firstly, start with evidence. So you know, the, um, the I think the epiphany for me, the reason why I found myself. I work at Twitter, I was like, you know, I had no interest in writing a book about work culture. But I found myself researching it and talking to some of the leading practitioners and being blown away. The reason why I wrote a book on it is that I was blown away with the amount of evidence there is about how to work more effectively and, and how to, the, the science of sort of being the best version of ourselves. And so for me, I think probably if I was going to summarise it, it's about spending as much time thinking about rest as it is about work. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, there's increasing focus over the last couple of years on uh, the emphasis of sleep and, and sort of uh, redressing the fact that sleep seems to be an important part of a healthy brain. But I think we've done that, but we haven't necessarily said taking a lunch break or or giving ourselves sort of a moment of pause during the day seems to be of service to making us more productive, creative and, and collaborative. Right. 
So was there anything that was particularly surprising to you then when writing The Joy of Work? Yeah, the thing I was most taken with is that I think all of us have found ourselves um, maybe in a team where you've been laughing a lot or maybe in an environment where you're laughing and suddenly you think, oh, I don't want to be seen laughing. It looks like I'm messing around. It looks like I'm not doing my job. And I think the thing that was most fascinating for me is I spent weeks and months researching the science of laughter. And what you find is that, you know, as enjoyable as laughter is, it's also immensely productive. It helps, um, it helps liberate better thoughts in our mind, so it makes us more creative. It, uh, it seems to create team cohesion. It's incredibly good for building resilience in teams. So if you look, there's a brilliant author called Lawrence Gonzalez, and he's written three books about people who are survivors, people who emerge from the jungle at three months after a plane crash, or people who uh, manage to survive, you know, uh, sort of alpine disasters. And the people who generally survive are the ones who are able to laugh at the predicament they were in. So rather than like being earnest and sober about what they were doing, they were able to laugh and, you know, think, I'm in a terrible state here. So, so really interesting. Laughter seems to be, rather than the thing that we shouldn't do in tough times, it, sh it seems to be like if you're in a tough situation and you can reach for laughter, it seems like it's the, the magic potion that might get you through it. Right, so we should all aim to laugh a little bit. You know. <laughs> Great. And um, how do you feel technology is changing workplace culture? Um, I know you said modern work is hacked by tech and we have this always-on environment. Yeah, uh, look, you know, I, I think there's a critical thing that I found myself guilty of it as well. Optimising the immediate over the important. You know, I, I, if you ask anyone if they've got a good boss, the first thing they use to say whether they've got a good boss is how quickly their boss replies to their emails. So we're all guilty of it. It's not just bosses, it's all of us. But when you, um, what you find is that if you take a step back from the situation we're in. Take a moment to pause and reflect on the situation we're in. What you find is that um, when we prioritise the, the immediate over the important is that it seems to be at the expense that we don't make the best decisions. So, um, so that's it. I would say that you know, technology is incredibly enabling. It breaks down walls. It, it allows us to communicate things at scale, but we just need to balance our relationship with it. Great. Right, well then, without further ado, let's dive into your talk from this afternoon. Um, thanks for taking the time to talk with us here at Sideload. Bruce, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you so much. Right, so here's what happened. So I'm, I'm Bruce Aisley, I work at Twitter. Started off, uh, started off office of about seven people. Very easy to make nice culture when you've got seven people. Over the course of the next few years, I, uh, I saw the, the office grow and, and we reached about 250 people. And people used to come from our other offices saying, wow, this is the, like, the best culture in Twitter here. And uh, it feels amazing. And I made the mistake of thinking that that was any way down to me. And then here's what happened, I fucked it up. And it got really bad, the culture got bad. Whether it was down to me, it was down to just the uh, circumstance. We saw 40% of people leave in one year. And I found myself trying to understand what was the way that we'd had amazing culture before and what was the way we could get back to it now. So I started this podcast. You're never going to listen to this podcast. It's called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. You're never going to listen to that. And I know that because I've spoken to bigger audiences than this and I've gone hard selling it and no one, the listening figures don't go up. So I never, So here's what I'm going to try and do. I, I turned all of the learning from that. Here's what I found. I, was, I discovered there's a whole 
industry, a whole uh, field of academia, organisational psychology that studies what happens at work. None of that ever reaches people with a job. Seems a big issue. So I started chatting to all these people, and it was like unearthing the secret manuscripts of uh, the secrets of work. So that's what I did. I turned some of it into a book. So what I'm going to try and do now, we're all busy. We haven't got time to read books. I'm going to try and synthesize some of the stuff that I learned there. Now, look, firstly, here's the context. The reason why you feel exhausted at work, the reason why like, these, the universal experience of work right now is burnout. Half of all of office workers report burnout. You know, there was a wonderful article on BuzzFeed about uh, four weeks ago. The article, the, the journalist said that ever since she's been working, she's realized that she's, there's an expectation that we're meant to be working all the time. And the consequence of that, this sort of 70-hour availability to our devices a, a week, the consequence of that is people feel like they can't get stuff done in their private life, like routine things. They just feel like they haven't got the energy for, and that's burnout. So, you know, if you're expecting something big and august and someone to come around your house when you, when you reach the stage of burnout, that unfortunately isn't going to happen. Burnout is just like this creeping thing where we, we just feel like we haven't got the energy for things. If you find yourself trawling through holiday websites, imagining an escape, then it's possible that you're in a stage of burnout. So, and, and broadly, here's what's happened. Here's the way we've got there, is that before any of you guys uh, realised, before you, any of you guys were in work, 15 years ago, we, it, uh, the decision was made to take emails onto our mobile phones. And here's what happened. When that was there, uh, it, was, it felt like a joyful change. The, someone, the, a rumour went round the office that John had got a Blackberry. That was what happened in most works. And people would slide up to John's desk, and they'd ask John how he got his Blackberry, and he'd say, well, I went up to IT and I said this. And, and in that act, everyone repeated those words and got email on their phones. And honestly, to try and, I don't want to be rose-tinted about it, but um, it, it, the, having a Blackberry was going to enable you to mess around at work more. It was meant to free time that you could do emails on the go, so you could have more chats at work. Rewind it forward. The uh, the average situation of the, the average working day has gone up from nine and a, from seven and a half hours a day to nine and a half hours a day. So we've seen a two-hour increase in the average working day. But half of all of the of people who check their emails for those two hours a day outside of work hours show the highest measurable levels of stress. Okay, and that's worrying, isn't it? Because that suggests half the people in this room, maybe, maybe. You know, half the people in that room have got the highest measurable level of stress, but we're so surrounded with stress, we can't even recognize stress. And stress, the, the reason why that matters is that the second trend that's coming, and it's the thing, do you guys use Gmail here? G, anyone who uses Gmail? Gmail has started finishing your sentences for you. And initially it was like just casually adding a quick word. Now it's sort of giving you a full sentence. Pretty good sentences, actually. Sort of quite an upgrade on what I was going to say. And, uh, but by extrapolation, in the same way we can't imagine what our iPhones are going to look like in nine, ten years, can we? We're just like bigger, faster, I don't know, I have no idea. We, in, we can't imagine the way that work's going to evolve. The one thing is unequivocally true is that machine learning and automation is going to steal some parts of the jobs that we do now. And the things that we need to protect ourselves uh, by, by upskilling in is things that involve creativity. 
So look, you know, we're in a creative company here. Things that involve originality, clever, you know, innovative thought, they're the things that we need to, to develop. The challenge is this. So they're the two things that we're in the middle of. What I'm going to show you is the science of creativity is that science is completely crushed by any sort of stress. Uh, um, creativity is killed by any sort of stress. And so it, we're in a zone where, unless we're careful, we're going to uh, prevent ourselves being able to, to do the jobs of the future because the operating system of modern work is stress. So, so that's what I'm going to try and take you through. I'm going to give you some solutions to it. One of the questions that, if you're remotely interested in work culture and team culture and company culture, one of the people that is often referenced is Simon Sinek. He said, Simon Sinek says, his whole hypothesis is that the most important question for anyone in a job, for any organization, is, is answering the question, why? Why do you go to work? What's your purpose? And the challenge of that is that uh, while that makes a lot of sense, and you can see real evidence of it, if you, if you explain to a worker why they're doing something, you can measure that there's a strong uplift. So if you give fundraisers uh, the opportunity to meet the person they're raising the funds for, not just hearing about them, but meet them, their fundraising goes up threefold. Or if you, um, if you allow chefs to see the people who are eating their food, the food quality goes up by about 20%. So when we, when we see the final beneficiary of our job, it seems that we do our job better. Answering the question why definitely has a value to it. The challenge of it is that if you look at purpose-led organisations and organisations where they've answered the question why, uh, two-thirds of all teachers, in, which is purpose-led career, say that they're ready to quit their jobs. Uh, the levels of burnout in the NHS are higher than, than in any other profession in the UK. So answering the question why alone doesn't seem to work. So I'm going to try and articulate uh, some of the, the answers to the question how. How can we work in a more sustainable way? How can we, we make work more copable, really? Look, I'm going to go through two things. The most elevated forms of work culture have a combination of these two ingredients, positive effect and psychological safety. So let me illustrate what they are for you. So positive effect. So a, a pioneering psychologist called Alice Eisen first, uh, first explored this. And Alice Eisen did a really interesting experiment with payphones. So she got someone to call households, American households, from a payphone. So where you, you have a single coin and... and uh, I'm, I'm trying to explain a relic of the past to you here. Imagine no credit left on your phone, a bit like that. Uh, so ca calling people from a payphone with her, her last coin. So the call was going through to households. Now, at the receiving end of the household, they were, they were going to receive that call, and she wanted to see what the recipient of the call did. Now, the call was this. The call was someone saying, hi, I was just phoning my brother. He's coming to collect me. So this, the person who was in the payphone was expecting to, to get a lift. And with their last phone was calling. What Alice Eisen did is she went round the households, and how, to half the households she gave a free gift to. So she put half of the households in this positive state, in this good mood, by giving them a free gift on the doorstep just before the phone rang. The interesting thing is the phone calls then came in. And the people who'd received the gift reacted in a very different way to the people who hadn't. So the people who are in this good mood, in this positive effect, uh, would often say, oh, right, OK, you've dialed the wrong number. Well, why don't I take the number, and why don't I pass on a message? The people who are in a neutral state or a negative effect, they didn't do that. So she was really interested. The mood we're in seems to change the job that we do. She went into hospitals, and she, she gave gifts to doctors, and uh, the 
the doctors she gave gifts to, she gave all of the doctors um, case notes. And she said to them, you can look at these case notes for 20 minutes. And what she found was the doctors she put in a state of positive effect asked more questions and reached a more thorough diagnosis than the ones who weren't, which is bloody terrifying. And so what she found repeatedly is when people are in a good mood, they tend to be more open-minded, they ask better questions, and they're more collaborative. Right, so positive effect seems to be a really important ingredient. The, the thing I described to you before about half of all people being exhausted is what's also known as negative effect. So if we're wandering around in a sort of zombie-like state, it's, it's not in service of us being our most productive, collaborative selves. The other one I mentioned was psychological safety. And psych psychological safety um, is, is actually, the science of it is about 20 years old, but it's really reached uh, a, a peak of interest in the last couple of years. And it was pioneered by a woman called Amy Edmondson. She did a really interesting thing where she went around American hospitals and she wanted to understand the composition of teams. And she was looking at the, the, the faith that the team had of doing a good job, their track records of, of success, uh, whether the team felt that they were, they were candid and honest with each other. And at the end of her research, just when she'd had um, dozens of nurses conducting this research, she added a question, which was, uh, she added a data point, which was how many mistakes that those hospital teams have made. And her hypothesis was the best teams would make the fewest mistakes. And the problem was, is that when she looked at the evidence, the best teams seemed to make 10 times more mistakes than the worst teams. So she went back and she conducted interviews. And what she found was the best teams didn't make 10 times the mistakes. They just admitted to making 10 times the mistakes. Because when there was no consequence of admitting a mistake, it seemed that people were more willing to admit them. And so, the challenge, so psychological safety is the willingness to, to, to speak honestly, to say when you've done something wrong, to challenge the boss, maybe to sort of, uh, to, you know, to speak directly to each other, candid discussion. So psychological safety is the second ingredient. The challenge of it is that it's very difficult for businesses to reach. And one of the big challenges is very difficult to reach psychological safety in big groups. So if you've got a weekly meeting that's 20 people, it's a lot harder to reach psychological safety in that than if you've got a weekly meeting that's four people. So an important consideration I'm going to come back to. So I just want to show you a little bit of the science of stress. And I've chosen one example of here, and sorry if anyone's phobic of rats. So this is, um, there's, no, there's no shortage of evidence that stress kills our capacity to be creative. But I, I thought I'd show you one piece of evidence in particular. Now, any time you think about stress, one of, the one of the dangers we can ever have when we think about work is think back to our times at college or think back to our times studying. Because you might think, well, you know, I pulled a couple of all-nighters there, or I was quite stressed there, and I got the job done. And if you have a look, short-term time stress can be a motivator. It can help us do a better job, but it's only when it's occasional and it's only when it's short-term. When we live in permanent, perpetual stress, it has the opposite effect. Still to come, Bruce dives deeper into the ways we can all make our work lives better. But first, here's a clip from the last episode of Siloed, where we explored South by Southwest and discussed the key themes at the event, from AI to big data. There was a very strong negative mm -hmm. narrative, especially on the main stages at South by Southwest, um, about the technology um, giants and how they're collecting, using, sharing and profiteering from our data. Um, the resounding message was that our data is being collected and sold by companies often without our knowledge. Um, and that is problematic for lots of reasons. Um, but 
Alongside that, there was a sense of hope too, that things could be different. If we as users were less complacent and became more interested and educated about what's happening, um, and also had held big tech to account, um, there was definitely a feeling that there isn't enough discussion and debate about the issue. Um, the majority of the public don't really understand, and I don't, I don't mean us, the people that work in this industry day to day and read about it, um, understand the implications of, of this. Um, and Apple has called it, most recently, uh, Tim Cook called this problematic uh, issue around data privacy, called, he's called it the shadow economy. It's stuff that we don't realise that's happening necessarily. You're listening to Sideload, and we're diving back into Bruce Daisley's talk on work culture, asking us to think about the practical ways we can own our own work culture. So I was interested in how we can make, I was interested in how I can make the people at Twitter happier. And here, one of the challenges I had, so I'm going to show you some examples. Right, I'm going to show you five ways to, to improve work now. So, um, and these, these are quite pedestrian, you know, back to Simon Sinek say, giving big august uh, like why, reason why, purpose. Some of the ways to be, feel happier at work are just simple adaptations to try and reduce the anxiety and the stress that we feel. So look, number one way to feel less overwhelmed by work is to turn off the notifications on, on your devices. And the reason why is that we've, um, modern work has been, it's almost like modern work has been hacked. You know, we hear about nefarious people who, who are hacking society and they're trying to have their way over us. It's almost like somehow some organization has hacked modern work to try and upend it and uh, to, to cause damage to us. So the biggest challenge that, of modern work is non-stop non sea of interruptions. And when you look into the science of this, uh, there's something called attention residue. So if you're in the middle of you guys write things, you press releases, documents, statements, what you find is that if you're interrupted, I suspect, it takes you a while to get back into your flow. In fact, according to scientists, it takes you between 7 and 22 minutes to get back to where you were. And so while it might feel casual that you're going to a brief interruption, it might feel that you're just uh, you're trying to, to navigate and you're trying to stay on top of everything. What it means is that you struggle to get into what uh, scientists call deep work. You, you struggle to get into any concentration. Turning no notifications off on your phone is one of the most effective ways to do that. The scientist who, who did this work uh, works at Telefonica, and he, he went out, he tried to recruit a group of people to turn notifications off on their phone for a week. Uh, quite daunting prospect, right? And uh, so he couldn't get enough people to do it. So he agreed to do it for a day, one day. People turn their notifications off on their phone for one day. Two years later, half of all those people still had their notifications turned off. It's the most, uh, so someone tweeted me the other day saying that like, it's the first thing they did and it's transformed their life. It doesn't mean that you're unavailable. You know, like you can very easily say to people, you need me urgently, uh, urgently phone me, but uh, I'm not going to be connecting and checking all the time. I think we've got an expectation that somehow, and I recognize there are moments of urgency, but that we, we sort of treat life like we're driving everywhere in the fast lane and, and trying to get some balance. One of the things that someone suggested to me is the best way to try and accommodate this into your life, this sort of freedom from interruptions, is what he called a monk mode morning. So he takes an hour twice a week, just one hour twice a week, where he immerses himself in finishing that document that's been sitting on his to-do list, not having any interruptions. So trying to channel 
small periods of, of space seems, seems quite productive. Next, second one is, uh, is reclaiming your lunch break. Now, um, again, it feels quite pedestrian. The science of lunch of breaks is incredibly powerful. So um, what you find, worst time to find yourself in court, I'm just putting it out there, uh, is just before lunch. You're more likely to be found guilty, and if it's sentencing time, you're more likely to go down for longer. Um, did anyone read that Robert Cialdini book when there was, you know, influenced by Robert Cialdini? He said in that, I always think of that, he said pretty people do better in court. Pretty people, we, we, we see beautiful people and we, we project nice thoughts onto them. Good-looking people are less likely to be found guilty and less likely to get long sentences. So in summary, the worst thing to be is ugly in the morning. And, uh, but like just before lunch, what you find is any time we take a break, it recharges our, our energy. I'm going to show you this quotation because I think fundamentally, if you only hear one thing of what I say here, I think fundamentally this is changes the way we think about work. So Elon Musk said just before Christmas, he said, unless you're working 80 hours a week, you're not showing up. He said it, you can check it out, he said it with tears in his eyes, it was a TV interview, almost like he was crying about how much he loved working. But the interesting thing is that the, when you look into the science of us working with our brains, um, and it's similar to the, uh, when we work with that physically, but um, it seems like the opposite is true, our brains are far closer to the batteries on our phone than we believe. So I'm going to show you something here. You can go and check my marking. The, the science of this is called ego depletion. Now, the best summary of ego depletion I've got is from a guy, um, Daniel Leverton. I'm going to show you this quotation. It's from a book. Do not buy this book. The book is, is terrible. This is the only good thing in that book. Do not buy this book. We'll read it for you. Our brains are configured to make a certain number of decisions per day. And once we reach that limit, we can't make any more regardless of how important they are. Right. So if you search that, what you'll find, the arguments about ego depletion, these arguments around the edges. Can you do 5% more? Can you do 10% more? But it's similar to anyone who sort of saw stories about Albert Einstein wearing the same outfit every day. Or um, I remember, I'm a big tennis fan, I, I remember an interview with Andy Murray where he said, Andy Murray said, five set tennis matches, they aren't, it's not like it's physically uh, exhausting. They are, but we, the best five players in the world train to be in that stage. So actually, that's fine. It's the fact that after playing for five hours, you can't make any more decisions. Your brain is completely frazzled. Anyone recognize that? You go home, you think you're going to work on something. You just, you don't feel anywhere near as capable as you were at 10 o'clock that morning. And that's it. Ego depletion. Our brains are finite. Now, as soon as you accept, accept that, you start saying, okay, so the way we're working probably isn't right, okay? Like the idea that somehow we're going to pack our day with meetings, then we're going to struggle through emails, then we're going to try and do our documents at night at home, it's, it, that's no way to work. It feels like something's broken. So that's why I started this section by saying the importance of lunch breaks. If you, if you take a lunch break, paradoxically, it seems to improve our productivity in the afternoon and refreshes us. It refreshes our, our phone battery. So taking a lunch break, it might feel like a crazy thing to do, but it often leads to us uh, achieving more. So I'm, uh, I'm going to give you a couple more. So uh, rethinking how we do meetings. So here's the one thing that I think I mentioned earlier, is that the psychological safety in meetings is inversely uh, related to the amount of people in meetings. If you want candor, 
You don't have 30 people in a meeting. I think you recognize that. But you know, the, the way we construct meetings also seems to be at the expense of productivity. So um, one, of the things that, one of the things that's most interesting to observe is, I'd ask you this, is to think about the last time that you had a creative idea, or a, a flash of inspiration, and a really uh, clever insight into something. I suspect, if you're like most people, you didn't have it when you were staring at your computer screen. Anyone have ideas when they're in the shower? Or anyone have ideas when like, they're staring out a window on the bus? That's because that's a part of your brain called the default mode, the default network. If you were doing GCSE neuroscience, if such a thing existed, the way that they would categorize your brain for you is they'd say, the main part of your brain is your executive attention network. It's doing stuff. You know, it's, it's, it's you writing something with your pen, executive attention network. Then the salience network right now is running background predictions of what's going on in here. It's why if all of a sudden one of the walls fell down, because it, it, it'd be so jarring because the salience network hadn't predicted it. And the final uh, network in your brain is the default mode, the default network. And that's, you can normally only observe it when you give someone something to do and then watch what happens when they stop. But that's often where we find that daydream mode, that sort of distractible mode, that's often where we have our creative ideas. My best example of that, the, the thing I'm really uh, fascinated by, is the guy who wrote um, the West Wing TV show, who wrote the Social Network film, a guy called Aaron Sorkin. He, he discovered the same. He realized his default mode was the thing getting him to the end of a script. And uh, he, he realized he was, he was having all his best ideas in the shower. So he had a shower installed in the corner of his office. And he has eight to 10 showers a day. <laughs> I told someone that this morning. And they said, I hope he moisturizes. And I, I, I wouldn't have cared. But, um, but the, the default mode, so that's it. So the challenge, ch challenge is we create work, which I suspect the, the curse of modern work is that all of us, we look at each other's calendars. And if people don't have meetings in them, we think we're do they're doing nothing, right? But when you look at the time that people have creative ideas, it very rarely correlates with you sitting in a meeting. It very, very rarely correlates. If you want to try and find a way to do it, walking meetings are one of the most effective way to do it. So two people on a walking meeting seems to increase, uh, increase creativity, divergent thought. So just an interesting way, rethinking the time you're spending in meetings, the size of meetings, and how you do those meetings seems quite critical. I'm going to give you another one. This, there's two more, and they're really quick. Uh, so this is, uh, the, the power of fika is, if any Swedish people here? So fika is a Swedish tradition, sort of coffee and cake is the way you describe it. And they have this tradition where uh, mid-afternoon, people often go and have a, a cup of coffee, bit of cake, sort of, I guess we'd call it a tea break. And, uh, and what you find is that that seems to be very effective at, at re-energizing people, but also it seems to have a greater function. And one of the functions is that it seems to build uh, stronger cohesion between people. So no surprise, conversation sort of seems to uh, have a positive effect. One of, the, one of the interesting things about that is that when you look at the science of how people connect and interact with people, sort of human synchronization. So one example of it is here is this is done by a guy called Robin Dunbar, quite a famous uh, psychologist. And he did a really interesting experiment where he got some rowers at Oxford University. And he put a group of the rowers on rowing machines. He asked them to row as, as much as they could. 
And then in a separate room, you got a group of rowers, and you got them to row in a virtual boat. So that was the difference. They had to be in sync with each other. They had to be sort of on the uh, equal stroke with each other. Then he measured the endorphin levels in the two groups. And the only way you can measure endorphins second to second is by inflicting pain upon people. So if you imagine sort of one of those armbands you'd have as a kid, and uh, they, they put some air in it, and then they just keep inflating it till people can't take it any longer. And that's, that's what they do. What they found was that the rowers who were in sync with each other could take twice the amount of pain as the rowers who couldn't. So there's something that when we feel a connection with the people around us, something is, uh, we, we get into an elevated state. And you see that with, uh, see that with choirs. I didn't have the choir slide. You see that with choirs. You see that with, uh, with people who um, dance together. You, you see sort of that elevated state. But one of the other ways you can observe it, so obviously all of those things are difficult to achieve in a day-to-day environment, very difficult to accommodate rowing into a team meeting, but um, you, you can do those things at a slightly lesser level. Laughing achieves it, and face-to-face -face conversation, or actually one-to-one -one conversation on video chat has an almost similar effect. But so, um, so conversation seems to activate those things, seems to create synchronization. So that's why Swedish people going to have a coffee together seems to create something beneficial. Uh, so this one here is, is just overall the power of conversation. Um, taking similar science, someone looked at couples who lived, uh, had a long-distance relationship. So this was 4,000 American couples who lived in different cities, and they wanted to know which of those relationships would survive. And the relationships that survived were the ones where they phoned each other every day to talk about trivial things. So the people who were just relying on Messenger or WhatsApp, or those were the ones that seemed to fall, fall uh, 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 by the wayside. But the ones where people chat to each other, so that human synchronization seems to have an, a sort of an invisible but powerful effect on us. Uh, so this is what one evidence of the, the power of that conversation. So one of the most fascinating bits of research of modern working is that um, anyone who's found themselves in a bar or whatever and, and seen a sports game on the screen and seen that these, these like a, they often show a heat map of where everyone's on the court, where everyone's on the pitch. And someone um, at Massachusetts Institute of Technology said, how about we track work like that? How about we sort of we scan where everyone's going in the office, see what's happening, see who's chatting to whom? And what they found very quickly, within a couple of months, they realized they could tell what were the creative offices and what were the uncreative offices, what were the productive offices and what were the unproductive offices. Here's what they found. Email contributed about 2% to what got done in offices. Meetings contributed about 3%. But the most powerful thing was face-to-face -face conversation. So that's, that human synchronization counted about 38% of what got done. So here's, the, the scientists did this experiment where they, they sent people working in a call center on a tea break. So previously, all these people went on a break on their own. Now they went on a break at the same time as each other. What they found was, so it was a 15-minute intervention. They found that the stress levels of people going on a break together reduced by about 20%, 19%. But their productivity went up by 23%. And that was literally because they sent them on a break together. Someone had just come off a stressful call in the call center and would say to the other person, you won't believe the call I've just had. And the person next to them would say, right, OK, when that happens, I do this. So weirdly, that human synchronization, like, like the, the guy from MIT discovered, that, that connection, that conversation, seemed to solve far more things than uh, formal meetings or, or more structured get-togethers.